Hi, everybody. This is episode two of Foster Care Unveiled. I have a very special guest today, a good friend of mine named Rachel. Hello. How's it going? Good. We're so happy to have you on today. I know. I'm excited. Um, so Rachel and I met back in college, which I can't believe has been six years now. <laughs> um, and she ended up kind of heading on the path of social work. So we're going to let her give some background on that story, why she decided to get into it and where she ended up. Okay. So yeah, I went to school for human services and was kind of, I don't know, interested in it just because I thought there was a lot of injustices going on. And I saw a lot of people around me who I felt like needed support, needed help. And so that's kind of why I felt called to that. Um, And I went in originally thinking that I was not going to get into child welfare. Um, I felt like that's what everyone was doing. So I didn't want to. Um, But that's kind of where I continued to end up. Um, All through school, I worked in a foster care agency, a private licensing agency. um, And I worked as a case aide there. So I was helping out kind of just supervise foster kids and provide you know, breaks and respite for foster families. Right. Um, and so I was doing that and I eventually moved with that same um, organization, started doing policy writing for them. Um, so I spent a while doing that. Um, and then I, I relocated after college and ended up working with CPS for a while. So I um, actually ended up being in child welfare for a while. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Yeah. I didn't even realize you'd been in quite so many jobs. Yeah, it just, um, that's kind of, you know, what ended up fitting for a long time. Um, the case aid thing was, started out as kind of like an internship uh, with the human services program. Um, and I ended up really liking that when I was able to build some really good connections with just a very small handful of foster kids, which was awesome. Um, and I was lucky to be able to kind of have some, you know, natural growth opportunities in that writing policy Um, And then I got to kind of go straight into CPS once I moved. Yeah, that's awesome. So you clearly have the experience. But then my burning question is, you're no longer doing this work. Why (laughs) did you quit? So I think it was a lot of reasons. Um, CPS kind of was what pushed me to quit, which felt so weird because I felt like I had finally kind of gotten into like the big leagues of child welfare it's like cps is kind of where it all happens right um and it was just you know not really what i expected everyone tells you like oh it's so rewarding um people ask me a lot like what like what moments make it worth it like the kids make it worth it and i just wasn't necessarily having that it just i was seeing a lot of situations where technically on paper the kids were safe but it just felt so kind of like crappy to leave that situation and say well policy wise we did our job um right still see so many you know injustices or lack of support or situations that I still wanted to help and once the policy once you do what you're supposed to with work once you leave like you're not allowed to help anymore um and so that was really hard to see um and there's just a lot that social workers can't do or that you know we have to work so hard to just do like the minimal amount of helping for the families that we want to do. Um, so it ended up being really hard. And then like, as well as that CPS workers see trauma on a daily basis. Like I'm sure that's not a surprise to people. These foster kids and, you know, their families are going through a lot of stuff and it's based on trauma. Um, but it's a lot to see and there's no time to slow down and kind of process it. So that really got to me there, you know, There were days where I was working super late with a traumatic case and I was expected to be back to work bright and early the next morning, ready to work like nothing happened. So that just kind of got to me. Right. Well, and I mean, they expect that you're not going to go home and discuss the situations you dealt Mm -hmm. with during the day because it's all classified information. So you aren't able to like go home and process that with people you care about. Yeah, there are to sit with it on your own. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of days where, you know, something really traumatic would happen. And I would see things with, you know, little kids that don't deserve it. And I would just, you know, have to go home and my partner could tell that I was 
upset and that I was trying to process and I couldn't talk to him about it and you know he would try to do his best to comfort me but it's kind of hard when you can't discuss what's going on to actually work your way through all the horrible things you see right yeah that makes total sense I mm-hmm. can't even imagine well and just having to separate yourself like you were talking about you know from policy and your job and then also on the other end of it how much you care and how much more you want to do Yeah, that was one of the hardest things, honestly, because everyone always tells you like how much, you know, heart goes into this profession, which is super true. You know, you have to care in order to do it because if you don't, it's just too much. Um, But that's the hard part, too, is you care so much and there's limits on what you can do. So you have to go home and sit with the fact that even though you still care and still want to help that you can't and you just have to leave the situation as it is. Yeah, which is traumatic in and of itself. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Well, and how, you know, I am pretty sure that you guys aren't held liable for these types of things. But what if something, you know, you were able to send a kiddo back Mm -hmm. or not take them into custody and then something bad happened again? Like, do you end up getting follow up on that? How do you feel? So with that, I mean, yeah, like you were saying, most of the time we're not held liable unless there is the case where, you know, something was overlooked, which doesn't happen very often, I feel like, at least from my experience. But we did have situations for sure where the policy is that, you know, if one safety issue is called in and we address that, um, you know, and say like there isn't removal or say that there is and there's certain things that the bio parents need to do to be reunified with their kids, um, if they do those things and address that single safety threat that was called in, we can reunify kids as long as there's nothing else on um, the list of safety threats. You know, it can be a dirty home and the parents can totally ignore their kids and yell at them all day long. But as long as, you know, the abuse stopped, we can return the kid home. And that's one of the hard situations is you can return a kid home knowing that it's not a good parenting situation and that the kid's not going to thrive there. But the safety issue is addressed And then we do get those calls again because the kid was returned to a home where there's high risk and we're not liable because we addressed the initial risk. And then something new happens just because the house is kind of so volatile um, that, you know, the initial issue was fixed and then something else came up because, you know, a lot of bio parents don't know how to, you know, process the trauma that their kids are reacting to and they don't know how to discipline or supervise. And those things don't necessarily get fixed on a one-time basis. So... Yeah, we do get a lot of repeat calls. You're not legally responsible, but I'm sure there's a lot of heart that goes into that where Mm -hmm. you do feel somewhat responsible, right, if it happens again. Yeah, I had, um, you know, I worked with CPS for four months, which isn't even that long, but I had a lot of cases where we would go to a home and I would see these homes and technically the safety threat wasn't bad enough to remove a kid. But me, as someone who has worked with kids my whole life, you know, I was a nanny before I started doing all this stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, I know what it looks like to have a safe home for a kid to thrive in. And I rarely saw that on the house calls that we did. And I would have to leave and say, okay, well, this kid's technically fine. Um, And then I would, you know, have to go home and think, well, okay, what if this happens? Like that risk is there. And since the risk didn't happen yet, we just have to cross our fingers that we're making the right choice in keeping a child with their bio parents yeah well and I know that it's or at least this is what I hear through the grapevine as a foster parent that a lot of the time the department has to return kids back knowing that while on paper there's not a set probably is going to happen that will Mm -hmm. give them the grounds to then work to terminate bio parent rights is that true I mean, in my experience, that is kind of true because as much as that, you know, the heart that goes into the work is there, we're bound by laws and a parent has to cross a line before we can remove a child or before we can implement services. And yes, we've worked in this profession enough to see when a family is headed towards that line. Like a lot of my coworkers and I, we'd have conversations saying, yeah, this is probably going to happen. And there are a lot of times we're right, but we can't intervene until they actually cross that legal line. And so, and it makes sense, you know, you can't just take kids because you think something bad is going to happen because what if it doesn't, then you just took a kid, but then it's so hard because then, you know, you're just waiting until 
they cross that line, which is horrible because you're just waiting for something bad to happen to a kid. Right. Definitely not ideal. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. That's, oh, I know it's cringy, but it does make sense. And with Washington State being such a parental rights state, exactly. I feel like, you know, kids are kind of in a place where they don't have a ton of rights. They don't usually mm-hmm. have say over their situation um, because a kid can't come to you and say, hey, I don't feel safe. Like, mm-hmm. can I not be with my parents, right? I mean, sometimes they can. I had calls like that, um, especially if they're teenagers. That The age and the developmental level plays a lot into um, how their statements hold up in court and in a CPS case. Um, and you see a lot of kids, especially once they start getting older, they've had trauma in their lives for so long. They know how to work the system and they know what to say and, and what is a red flag. And so it's almost harder when a kid that's been in the system says, I don't feel safe at home and we have to investigate it. And they know that we have to. And so it's kind of like a catch 22. Like we definitely take what kids say as, you know, something that's true and worth investigating. But then at the same time, are they saying it, you know, because they're mad at their mom because they don't know how to process emotion with their parents. And there's just so many different levels that go into it. Right. Um, And so, you know, because kids with trauma sometimes can't process regular emotions or they have oppositional defiance disorder. And so little things can make them make statements that you have to investigate, too. Right. So it's definitely really hard. Yeah. I mean, that makes total sense. It it's frustrating. I feel like no matter what Mm -hmm. side of it you're on, because, you know, we don't want to shut kids down when they actually do come forward with information. A hundred percent. Yeah. Because then that kind of, you know, makes them feel their voice isn't going to be heard and what they have to say Mm -hmm. isn't important. And maybe they wouldn't come forward again in the future. But then at the same time, everything you said is so valid about, you know, these kiddos who have had trauma and maybe can't adequately express what they've been through or aren't telling Mm -hmm. the truth or yeah, well, and it's also hard, too, because sometimes you get kids that say that they don't feel safe at home. And, you know, again, with those legal boundaries that we have, feeling safe and being safe are different things. And so sometimes you have to tell a kid, you know, I am so glad you told me that you don't feel safe. Like, that's so brave of you to talk to someone. But until something happens, we can't do anything. So here's my card. <laughs> here's my cell phone. And, you know, I understand that you feel like there's a risk. Call me when something happens. And, you know, that's sometimes what we have to do, which is also super hard. Yeah, I mean, how heart-wrenching. I know, to have a kid tell you that they feel unsafe in their home. But, you know, on paper, there's nothing that actually happened. So CPS can't do much. Uh, yes. Well, thank you for sharing all of that. I I definitely want to dive into that a little bit more in a bit. Um, but I do want to ask you to maybe bust a few myths about CPS in general. All right. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So I think as a general consensus, foster parents often feel that CPS wants to remove kids from their families and their homes. So like me as a foster parent, I feel that um, CPS and the department, you know, social workers, are wanting to remove the kiddo from my home and return to bio parent and that I don't Mm -hmm. have much say in what's going on in her life or, you know, X, Y, Z, but we're basically glorified babysitters. Yeah. Yeah. And that one's tough. And it goes kind of back to those legal uh, boundaries that we have to follow because Washington state is a reunification state so that means that reunification with bio parents is always our top priority um you know whether we think it's a home they can thrive in or not once it's safe we will put the kids back in their bio parents home um just because that's that's what washington state has decided is the law um and you know there's pros and cons to both sides i can definitely see you know the side that bio parents always have the top priority to their kids and the top rights to their kids um you know we're like unfortunately we're not allowed to say hey you're not allowed to be a parent right. um, unless there are those really big safety threats um and so we have to work towards reunifying that's just what we do in this state um and you know i think each social worker's personal view on that probably varies a whole bunch 
Um, personally, I've seen experiences where, you know, and in your case too, like you're a great mom to your kiddo. And I know what bio parents homes look like. Sometimes they're really good and sometimes they're not that great. And foster parents can be really like a stable, comfortable home that kids can thrive in. And so there are situations where I would see, you know, like you raising a kid saying, oh yeah, I like, this is where I think the kid would thrive. Like they are going to have such a good life here. They're going to learn, they're going to grow. And, you know, personally, that's, that can be my opinion, but because of the law, if there's no threat at their bio parents home, we have to take them out of the home that they're thriving in because it's not their bio family. So, right. I mean, it's, it's less of kind of what we want to do and what we think, you know, is the most comfortable situation for the kid and more of like, if there's a safety threat, they can be in a foster home. And once that safety threat goes away, they will go back to their bio family, whether we think it's comfortable or, you know, the best situation or not, like that's what the law is. Yeah. And that was definitely a misconception I had. I kind of thought CPS, the department had a lot more say over what was happening to kids and families and their Mm -hmm. situations. And I've realized it really does just come down to policy. What's the law? And then, based on that, our judges are ruling and based on that, right, you guys are having to operate in certain ways. Yeah, I mean, CPS really, um, like, we get the calls, but because of the ways that the laws work, our job is just kind of to collect evidence and present that to the judge. Um, We're not necessarily the ones to say, I think this is best for a kid. We're the ones to say, this is what's happening in a bio family's home. This is what's happening to the kid. This is where they're at with their foster family. And we lay it all out on the table and the judge makes a decision for us. You know, we can say our opinion, but it really doesn't matter when it comes down to the final decision. Right. So on the opposite side, right, that was from a foster parent's perspective. Mm -hmm. I think another, you know, common misconception is that CPS wants to remove kids from their biological families, Yeah, that is a huge one. I've actually, you know, I've talked to biological families that think that we get commission for every kid that we remove. Um, I've had bio families saying that I'm going to get a bonus for taking their kid out of their home. And none of that is true. You know, we know that removing a child from their home is traumatic. That is not what we want to do at all. We want to keep a kid safe. And if that, you know, last resort is taking them out of their home. But if that's what it takes to keep them safe, we will 100% do it because our job is keeping kids safe and having their well-being prioritized. Right. Um, But, you know, I never go into, or when I worked there, I never went into a home thinking, all right, time to take this kid. I'm ready. Let's, you know, let's go break up a family. That is not what we do. My personal perspective was always, this family needs help. And I don't know if we'll be able to help them while the child is in their home. And so that's kind of what we're assessing. Mm -hmm. Um, And I totally understand from the bio parents perspective that it does seem like we want to take your kid, you know, we just show up at your door and insult your parenting and say, Hey, you're not keeping your kids safe. I just met your family, but here's what we think is happening. Mm -hmm. And, and that sucks. And it feels like an attack and parents get defensive, understandably. So, But, you know, a lot of times I would just try to explain, like, if bio parents can work with us and if they can let those walls down and take, you know, take up the services that we're offering, we don't have to remove your kid if you can help us help you, you know, like we, as cheesy as that sounds, we really just want to make sure the kid is safe. And if parents can let us do that, you know, we will let you keep your kid. (laughs) It's it's kind of as simple as that. We don't want your kid to be traumatized and removed from their family. Right. Well, and it's actually amazing how much the system does do to help bio parents, um, Mm -hmm. whether it be helping them with housing costs or getting them into programs, getting them parenting classes, right? I mean, that yeah, 100% you guys are. Statistically, that's like the most of what we do, which is hard and that you know cps gets such a bad reputation because people really do they what they see is when we take kids because that's the you know the showiest thing that happens as kids get removed right but so many times we go into a home and the parents just tell us well of course i can't do proper child care because i'm a single parent working and we're behind on rent and you know all these different things that are just underlying issues and so if we can help solve those parenting gets better 
and we have the resources most of the time to help solve those it's just that that happens you know behind the scenes people don't talk about when they're struggling and then cps comes in and helps them yeah um but that you know we do that a lot and i wish that more people knew that because really we do want families to just have resources and have support because we like i mean at least from my perspective i think that when families have support and resources that a lot of these issues that create trauma you know they'll kind of go away they won't be there as much yeah and that you know it makes sense and i think you're right that's that's not shown Mm -hmm. um i was kind of shocked to find out actually how above and beyond the government was willing to go to help these parents keep their kids yeah, and I had a lot of times when I would, you know, go to parents' homes, I would have to talk them down and say, you know, listen, I'm not going to take your kid today. That's not what I'm here to do. And as soon as that communication was there and as soon as they understood, I'm not here to break up your family, um, a lot of parents would kind of, they would meet me with kind of shock saying, oh my gosh, wait, you're, you can actually help me. We can be allies. And you know, so many people just don't know that. And that's why so many people are defensive of our services. But then once parents open up to it, it can actually be really, you know, helpful and a really nice, positive connection. Right. Do you feel like most parents are receptive to being offered those resources and services? Or what, like, percentage would you say? I mean, I don't think I have a, you know, a good number to say confidently. But I think there's a lot that goes into it just because, you know, a lot of these families, some of them have been in the system themselves when they were kids, and a lot of them had negative experiences. So whether we want to offer services or not, they're immediately meeting us with, I know what you're here for, and they're defensive because they have their own scars and trauma mm-hmm. from their own upbringing. And, you know, and then there's a lot of pride that goes into it. People have a hard time accepting help, especially from CPS. That's a defensive position to be in and to have to let walls down to say yes I need help and I cannot do this on my own. And my only option at this point is to accept your help. Um, you know, so I think it's, it's really important. And it was when I would go in, it's important to establish like a non, non-defensive um, relationship with those bio families um, because you really do have to give them time to process that they don't have to be defensive and that they have their own traumas and that we're going to try to meet them where they're at. Um, But you have to do all that before families can be receptive of that support you're trying to give them. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. It's so interesting. I know. I really loved it. And it was, it was really nice. We had some families that once they realized like, oh, I'm not in trouble and you're not going to ruin my family, that they were actually excited. Like they'd been needing help for a long time. And a lot of these families that the system comes to, they don't have you know, they don't have support systems of their own. That's why they're in the position they're in is because they don't have neighbors or family or friends that have been helping them. They're on their own. And so when they finally let those walls down, they see that they can get resources and that they finally might not have to struggle as much as they were. And that's that's the moments that are really helpful to me. And like that helped me get through the time I was in CPS is when the families finally kind of like take that deep breath and say, oh my gosh, okay, I might not have to struggle anymore. Right. And and that's awesome. And so when that happens, that's really, really nice. It feels to me that we should be making these resources more widely spread, well known, mm-hmm. so that we can combat these problems before it comes to, you know, job showing up on someone's store and saying, Hey, I might have to take your kids. Um, yeah. You know, if there were more programs in place, parenting programs, just general help through family policy Mm -hmm. right that would yeah stop stop it from getting so bad in a lot of cases Mm -hmm. yeah and that's the hard thing like what I really liked is that CPS did have access to so many resources like there were classes for parents who are incarcerated or parents who just got their kids back and are trying to not get them removed again like there's so many support classes monetary supports housing supports um but then the hard thing for me also was CPS is not a like a preventative program it is it's really it's a cleanup crew almost Mm -hmm. is what I always called it is because when I got into it I was thinking I'm going to help families and keep them from experiencing trauma but CPS uses those programs to kind of try to help people after the trauma happens um so I totally agree like what you were saying those programs are there it's just people don't know how to access them they don't have access to them until they cross that line until they get to that breaking point 
when it's too late to prevent something from happening. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, yeah, your word preventative, that's, that's key. Mm -hmm. And not just with the system, right. With so many things. Oh yeah. I mean, there are so many situations where, you know, in my time in CPS, I saw that if families would have gotten help a year ago, if they would have had a resource, you know, they wouldn't have had a call to CPS in the first place. It's just that those services, those preventative services aren't necessarily there. And there's not as much outreach to struggling families to say, hey, I'm noticing you need this. And, you know, there's so much stigma out there about getting services. And there's so many monetary issues. You know, people don't have funding. Nonprofits don't have funding. So there's just no, I I don't know, like no effective way in preventative care right now to stop that trauma from happening. Yeah. And I mean, you mentioned lack of funding even Mm -hmm. you guys who are hired by the government are so overworked and underpaid. Oh yeah. There it's a huge issue. And I am super passionate about that as well. Like just the fact that nonprofits have to fight for every dollar that they have, um, you know, there, we needed more employees at CPS and we couldn't get them just because they're, you know, there's not an option. They say, okay, once you have the minimum number of employees, you don't need any more because we can't pay anymore. And, you know, we don't have the funds to, you know, do anything preventative. And I don't know, it's just, it's so much of a struggle in nonprofits um, to fight for funding. It definitely affects the employees and the families that they work well, with. Well, it's a huge reason that turnover is so high in those mm-hmm. job lines. I mean, you stayed for what? You said you worked for CPS directly for four months? Four months, yeah. I mean, that's ridiculous and yeah and people like people weren't surprised when I left like that's that's another thing too is when I was there one employee had already left in the four months that I had gotten there and then at my four month point people understood that I was leaving it's it's hard and there's not necessarily a lot of relief like I you know I was saying earlier there were days where I worked till 11 at night and then was back at work at 7 30 the next morning and I didn't know if I was going to get off at five o'clock because someone has to drive kids you know it sometimes you get kids at 4 30 in the afternoon when you're supposed to go home at five and of course you're going to stay at your work and find them a foster home for the night and sometimes that's three hours away and you drive them to their new foster right home. it's not a nine to five uh, job because this doesn't happen no. in a nine to five time frame no, 100% trauma happens 24-7. And honestly, like the kids deserve someone to stay and they deserve that help. Of course, they're going through the worst of it. But, you know, at the same time, as an employee and as a human being who needs time for self-care, yes. I was told when I got this job, don't make plans. After, like on weekdays, don't make plans. Don't make dinner plans. Don't make plans with your friends because none of none of your plans can be for sure. Um, And that was just expected. We were expected to drop our personal lives for this work and you know I kind of knew that going in that's what I signed up for but when you're actually doing it you get so overworked and so tired and and at at the same time I still had to fight to get paid for overtime you know I was working till 11 o'clock at night and I was getting talked to saying why do you have more than 40 hours this week um and because there's just not funding and there's not you know, not the support there for the employees. Right. Well, you know, and your line of work gets kind of a bad rap for just not being very compassionate. And I feel like you can't to some extent, there has to be Mm -hmm. either, you know, one, you can't help yourself from being overly compassionate. So you can't continue. Right. And I'm sure that's the case for a lot of people. Or you have to build these walls you have to separate yourselves from the situation and then a lot of that compassion is lost oh yeah because I mean it's so traumatic and hard to go into these homes and I feel like I keep saying that word trauma all the time but you know that's the line of work is every home that you go into is experiencing a trauma and you know working those you know in theory nine to five hours that means every day from nine to five these workers are going into these homes where children are unsafe and they're being hurt and they're being you know scarred really seriously and to go see those situations you know I saw stuff every day that would make me want to cry and I would you know want to I would want to take these kids and say oh my gosh I'm so sorry this is happening to you this is not okay but you can't do that you can't go into a home and cry you have to be professional and that's you know it's one of the hardest situations to be professional in. it's not you know it's not a normal situation to be in 
And so you have to learn how to turn it off. And then, you know, sometimes that does present as like that lack of compassion, like you were saying, because we still feel it 100%. We see these situations and we feel it. It's, you know, but we can't show it. And so then we come off as flat because we have to hide that reaction. Right. Well, and it's impossible for the human nervous system to live in fight or flight constantly. Mm -hmm. And there were situations like my my body reacted to fight or flight because of some of the situations we go into homes where parents are screaming drugs are in the home alcohol's in the home weapons are in the home you know some of the calls we get the notes say there is a loaded gun in the living room parents are drug addicts they have shot people before go to this home and that is a lot of adrenaline to have in your body you know at all times when you're on the job totally yeah I mean and that's just unhealthy (laughs) yeah Yeah. And that's, you know, that's part of the reason why I left is because my body couldn't do it. And so, you know, I had to leave because at that point, you can't help the people that you're trying to help if you can't process that fight or flight anymore. Yeah. Ugh. Okay. So let's flip it. Do you (laughs) feel like there was a rewarding aspect of doing this job? I mean, I know you kind of mentioned that people say it's the kids that make it worth it, but you know, mm-hmm. that wasn't totally true for you. So what what was your most rewarding or what did you get out of it? Yeah, I mean, for me, I, you know, I agree with you in saying that I did have those experiences where, you know, I wish I could say the kids made it worth it, but CPS doesn't get to see the happy endings where they get reunited. You know, that's adoptions, that's family voluntary services. CPS gets to see the bad part mm-hmm. of things. Um, but you know, what made it worth it for me is finding those positives. Really for me, it was connecting with the parents. Um, you know, I love the kids. They're great. But when those parents, when the bio parents let their walls down and once they realized that we weren't trying to be a threat to them, that was when I really felt like I was able to do that support that I had gone into the work for in the first place, um, is seeing these parents that had needed help for so long and didn't know how to get it. And who loved their kids and wanted to parent their kids, but honestly, they couldn't at the situation that they were in. And being able to have those conversations of, okay, we're going to meet you where you're at. Let's give you resources. And then they realized that they could parent their kids. They could do this and that things would get better for them. That was probably the most rewarding. You know, I saw a single parent once who was just at his wit's end with his kids who had high medical needs and the kids were teenagers. They didn't want to take care of themselves and the dad didn't know how to take care of them. And he finally started working with us and realized that we weren't trying to, you know, we weren't trying to ruin his life. And he kind of, he, you know, that switch flipped and he was like, all right, let's do it. Let's, let's fix this. And seeing that motivation in, in that person's life was awesome. And I really, really liked that is seeing when the parents realize that they can control their situation and that we're just there to help. We're not there to force them into this horrible life that they think we're trying to force them into. Um, and it was awesome because parents can take control of, you know, the services that we're offering. And, and, and that was my favorite part. Yeah. I mean, and there are certainly biological parents who, right, maybe aren't the best people. But I think in general, mm-hmm. most people from the outside are like, how could you hurt your kids? How could you do this? What kind of sick person do yeah. you have to be? And I think a lot of what people don't realize is that one, you know, abuse, neglect, poverty, it's a cycle. So mm-hmm. usually these parents experience that themselves. Like you mentioned earlier, they've had their own trauma. Oh, yeah. They're already working through that. A lot of the time there's mental illness involved. There's things that are out of these parents' control. They're not necessarily wanting to be, right, horrible parents. Yeah, no, no one, you know, no parent that I ever went out to see wanted to be hurting their child or wanted to be a bad parent. It a hundred percent was circumstance. You know, these parents maybe had trauma of their own or they didn't ever know how to parent or, you know, maybe a a lot of it, not to, I feel like (laughs) to list so many things, but mental illness and self-medicating is huge. You know, these parents are maybe going through depression and they, you know, they don't have the mental capacity to raise a child. So they try to self-medicate to try to be a better parent, be more aware, but then they get addicted to drugs. And it's just so many different things. You know, parents never go into it saying, I want to be a bad parent. Yeah. And it's nice that you could see that. I think on the other side of it, you know, 
you just don't see enough to realize that that's what's going on. You're just like, Mm -hmm. how could you do this to this sweet child? And a hundred percent because the kids don't deserve it. You know, no kid deserves that. Even if the parent thinks they're doing their best, no kids deserve to go through traumas. Yeah, definitely not. Uh, Mm -hmm. um, Okay, so if you could give, this is going to be a bit of a threefold question. Okay. Okay. So if you could give a piece of advice to someone who wants to work for CPS, what would your advice be? I think giving advice to someone who wants to work CPS, I would definitely... I mean, there's lots of advice I feel like I could give, but make sure that you're prepared for the the constant stress and make sure you have a way to cope with that. And, you know, I for different people, that can be different things. For some people, coping with the stress can be seeing the kids, you know, be supported. Some people need more than that. Um, for me, it was I needed a lot of self-care um, and, you know, definitely prioritize yourself, know your limits and find ways to process it because, in my journey, I learned that my processing skills and what I needed to do to keep myself healthy didn't mesh with CPS. So I think really try to explore that and make sure that your coping skills are going to be something that can support you in this job. Right. Well, and don't don't put them into place once you've hit rock bottom. Yeah, they need to be. Yeah, <laughs> they need to be doing doing the support the yeah. whole time. You can't, you know, you can't just put in your self care once you know once you can't get out of bed anymore because work is so hard. You need to be self care way before that. Um, and then I also think at the same time, I do want to voice that if you can't do it, like if you got into CPS like me and realized, oh my gosh, I can't, like my coping skills are not fit for this job. That's okay too, because that's something I struggled with a lot is you hear a lot of people say, oh, it takes a special person to do this job, which is so true. But then the backhanded side of that is saying, well, what if I can't do it? What if I started doing it and I can't? And, you know, that's fine. That doesn't make you less of a good person. No, not at all. Um, and, you know, I think that's super important, too, is to know your limit and to be okay if you get pushed to that and, you know, step back if you need to. Yeah, and that's some huge self-reflection right there. Yeah, in a while. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so second part, what mm-hmm. would your advice be for potential foster parents? For potential foster parents, I think, um, especially through talking with you, I feel like I've gotten a little bit of a new perspective. Um, I think really try to work with your social workers and understand that some of the things that they tell you or the decisions they make are out of their hands. Um, And I think that that's super important. There are a lot of times when I was in CPS that I had to communicate with foster parents things that I knew didn't make sense, things that I knew were frustrating, um, things that I knew seemed like you know, they looked like poor choices on behalf of CPS. And most of the time they were things that I had no control over. So I think as foster parents, just kind of be aware that your social workers most likely not trying to pull one over on you. They're, they're just doing what they have to do. Um, and that it's okay to ask them about it, like level with your social worker. Um, and if you don't understand why something is happening, ask them about it. If it doesn't make sense, they'll try to explain it to the best of their abilities. Um, and then I think also just be patient, be ready for things to change, you know, mm-hmm. minute to minute. And also know that in that situation, social workers don't have control over that either. You know, there are a lot of times, like I was saying, if we get kids at 4.30, you're going to get a call at 4.30 and say, hey, I know it's the end of the business day. Um, I have these kids. We don't know anything about them because they just came in and we don't have time to figure it out, but they need a place to sleep. Um, and that's kind of what it is sometimes you just have to be ready for the unexpected and it's going to be crazy and (laughs) and you know and that's kind of the best that social workers can do sometime is a 10 minute update and because we get information very sporadically even the best laid plans (laughs) Uh uh-huh uh (laughs) so then finally to conclude that question what Mm -hmm. advice would you give to biological parents that are finding themselves in a situation with cps Um, you know, I feel like that one, I've talked a little bit about it already is just know that it's going to be really hard, but letting those walls down is really important. Um, CPS is not trying to be a bad guy. Uh, We are aware that we have jobs that tear families apart, really, um, to be blunt about it. We know that and that's we don't have fun doing it. um, And we know that you think we're going to take your family away. 
Um, but leveling with your CPS worker again is huge. You know, we're all adults trying to work together to support a child. Um, so, you know, try your hardest not to be defensive. Try your hardest to work with your social worker, even if you feel like what they're doing is not fair. Um, ask them why they're doing it. Ask them what you need to do and why you need to do it. And if you don't like what they're saying, ask if there's alternatives. Ask if there's a compromise. Tell them what works for you. You know, if, if they're saying you need to go to AA and you don't have a car, instead of just saying, I'm not going to go to this meeting, tell them, hey, I don't have a car. You know, I, I want to help keep my kids safe and this is why I can't. And if you tell them why you're unable to support your kid, they'll most likely be able to help you. Um, so just letting those walls down. I know it's hard, but, you know, it's it's kind of the most helpful thing yeah, to do. Really just open communication. Yeah, it's huge because I know the system doesn't make sense to anyone <laughs> who is involved. It really doesn't. Social workers have a hard time getting information. Foster parents, bio parents, the kids have no idea what's going on. Open communication, even if the answer is, I don't know why that's happening here's the information I do know. It's only 10% of what you want, but it's all right. that I have, you know, that kind of communication. That's, that's the best. Yeah, and it's just the best that the best that we can do. Mm-hmm. Um, well, thank you for that. And hopefully that reaches someone who maybe might need it on any of the end. <laughs> um, so now uh, kind of the last thing I want to talk to you about is policy. Uh, policy right. development and your opinions changes you think need to be made that type of thing so firstly mm-hmm. what can you tell us about any policies that are currently in place that you feel need to change so I don't know I have a lot of opinions about the policies <laughs> which that is we good have. that's why we want um, you on here <laughs> I I want to preface by saying that I think that most policymakers do have the best of intentions but that there's so many layers to all these things that they have to write policy about that it's impossible to write the perfect Mm -hmm. policy um but definitely through my experience there's a lot of vagueness in policy like one thing I know that you and I talked about is a lot of the policies when taking kids testimonies into account say based on age and developmental appropriateness um you know, that's, that's how they can judge if the kid's testimony is true or not, just based on age and developmental level. But that's so like, what age, what (laughs) developmental level, who's, who's judging that? Because yeah, like I have seen some teenagers who are all over the place, they cannot track a story. And then I've seen some toddlers who will tell you exactly what happened. They do not lie. They have details and their stories are trackable. And, you know, but that there's no policy on can we take toddler stories into account? What about teenagers who, you know, block things out because of trauma? Like what what justifies age and developmental right. level? So and that's really hard. Like, I don't know if there's an answer to that. Um, but that was one that I saw. And then another policy that I really I don't know, it didn't necessarily have a policy to it, but a policy I want to see is some safety guidelines on emotional well-being Mm -hmm. of kids. Um, I saw a lot of homes where the physical safety threat was met. You know, maybe parents learned how to discipline without abuse. That's great. But they still emotionally manipulate their children. Um, And there's no policy on that. You know, it's the house is safe. But those were the situations where policy-wise, I was doing my job. But, you know, in my perspective, I was putting a kid to an emotionally abusive home. And there's no policy on that because you can't measure it. You can't track it, but you can see it. You see it happening. Um, so there, you know, I wish there were a policy on emotional abuse. Um, and I think lastly, I'll just say a quick blurb that I wish there were a little more connection on policy between CPS and schools, mm-hmm. um, specifically regarding truancy. Okay. I know we have, we have policy on truancy, Um, But one thing I saw a lot is if CPS gets calls on truancy, um, it definitely reflects on parenting. You know, there were some parents who just said, my kids said they don't want to go to school, so I don't make them go to school and they don't supervise their kid. They just let them stay home and kids need to be in school. They need to have structure and Mm -hmm. supervision. Um, But as far as truancy goes, the school is supposed to handle that. CPS can't. And I just wish that there was a policy that connected the school to CPS in terms of kids not having access to education um, because there were some times where I'd get calls about truancy and parents not taking their kids to school 
and we wouldn't be able to do much about it. Like I was told that I didn't need to call the school to connect the dots because that's not how the policy worked. So I wish there's a little bit more connection of policy that guides services yeah, and like I that. I mean, that should be considered a form of neglect and abuse, right? I mean, in my opinion, yeah, I think it's neglect to not, you know, I mean, not take your kid's education seriously. When kids are underage, the parents are in charge of their education and their, you know, well-being as far as that goes. And that's part of neglect is if you're not watching out for their education, then you're neglecting their their future, really, because, you know, if I see kids not going to high school or not going to middle school, my immediate thought is, are they going to be okay as adults? They're not going to be able to get jobs and support right. themselves. And that's super important. And that's on the parents to make sure that yeah, that happens. And that's how the cycle then continues, right? Yeah, 100%. Because then you get kids that, you know, were neglected and learned no structure. And then they try to, you know, have families of their own. And they never learned how to support a family because yeah. they weren't supported. No, I think that's a super good one. And one I hadn't thought of, I didn't realize mm-hmm. there was so little crossover between schools and you guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, most of the time we work with schools a ton because CPS, in certain cases, um, we don't have to notify parents all the time when we go contact a child, depending on the case. Parents will get notified, but sometimes we touch Mm -hmm. base with the kid first. Um, And a lot of times that happens at school. We will go to schools and the schools, you know, most of the time work really well with CPS. Um, But policy crossover, there, there needs to be some more just so we know, you know, a lot of times schools didn't know how much they were allowed to tell CPS or if they can let CPS into the school to get a kid. Um, there needs to be just clearer policy on that because we work with schools. A yeah, lot. I mean, that's a big, a big way you guys get a lot of intakes, right? Because teachers are mandatory reporters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's honestly our, our busy seasons, which sounds so <laughs> weird to say, um, is, is after summer vacation when school starts up and then after winter break again in January, because kids go back to school and they tell stories and, you know, they might've been talking about it before, but not to anyone who has right. to tell anyone about it. Um, so, you know, you get a lot of elementary school kids who talk so much because they, <laughs> they haven't learned yet um, that people don't share right. everything, which is great. You know, it helps us so much, but they tell their teachers, Hey, guess what happened over summer vacation? And so we have an uptick in reports when kids go back to school because they're talking. Yeah, to and teachers. it's such an issue right now. You know, people are talking about with the virus and people being quarantined that domestic abuse is rising, but I think they're not talking mm-hmm. enough about the kids that are not getting contact with mandatory reporters and, you know, yeah. Lord only knows what's going on right behind I know. Yeah, I was, it was one of the first things on my mind, you know, I don't work in CPS anymore. But with this virus and the lockdown starting and schools closing, I just knew that, you know, cases reports were going down. And usually when school is out, and reports go down, you know, on the surface, you might think, oh, reports are going down. That's great. Lower numbers of intakes. But really, what could be happening is that kids aren't going places where they can tell people. So they're stuck at home with potentially abusive parents. And, no one to tell so that was definitely on the forefront yeah and it's hard because you know how do you we're doing this quarantine to protect people but then at the same time I feel like we're Mm -hmm. we are neglecting the most vulnerable at the same time yeah because we don't have you know we don't have systems in place to support them without mandated reporters being around kids all the time yeah Mm -hmm. okay so what suggestions would you have for someone who wanted to help, you know, enact new policy, change the system, have their voice heard? What would your suggestion be? Um, I definitely would say start off by trying to understand the policy that's already in place. Um, I know that it's not perfect. I'm frustrated with it. I know that you've had policies that you're frustrated with, um, but it is there for a reason. There was someone who thought about it and thought that that was, you know, the best route to go. And So trying to understand that, I think, can help understand um, the goal of the policy, maybe, and then trying to understand what doesn't work about it, you know. So if we were saying, you and I read a lot of policies that talked about, oh, if a child is a a certain age, then they can go to court. Well, what age is that? What's, you know, how are we going to understand that? It takes a lot of research and time, which I think you've definitely, you can Yeah, when it's not clear, (laughs) Um, regardless. No, 
no, it's not clear and there's no answers that you can find. Um, so I think definitely if you want to get into policy and get into changing policy, be prepared to research a ton um, and also be prepared to not find answers. And then when you don't find answers, that's when you know that's what you need to pursue. <laughs> Once you hit that wall of there is nowhere I can find an answer about this, um, go in that direction, push that more, explore that. Um, and I think that'll be a good way to kind of adjust policies or create new policies or get rid of old policies. Yeah, that that's really working. good advice. Um, as a whole, right, if we're talking policymakers, the government, do you feel that family policy specifically is neglected? Um, I mean, from my experience, I, I feel like it definitely needs more. I have no idea how much time gets put into it. I have no idea. Like, I never saw who wrote policy for CPS. I never talked to a policy writer for CPS. Um, but I know that when I was writing policy for a licensing agency, um, their policy hadn't been updated in, right. like, 10 years just because it didn't need to. Um, I mean, it did. <laughs> very much needed it. But, um, but, but, you know, like, as far as running an organization goes – no one really like at, at least in nonprofits from what I've seen there's no guideline of hey you have to re- review your policy every year and make sure it still works right it um, doesn't seem eminent compared you know, to everything I, else that's going on no when you're working CPS and you get a call that's like hey this kid is getting abused your first thought is not well I'm rewriting a policy right yeah. now you know you <laughs> you act with urgency and policy doesn't always feel urgent I think when you're working those frontline jobs um but then when you go back and reflect on the policy, you realize it is really important. You know, that's what guides what we do. Um, so I think, yeah, it definitely could use more attention. Um, and I also think it, you know, it needs um, a lot of, a lot more voices. Cause I feel like I don't know necessarily who writes all these policies. Um, but I can tell you, not a lot of bio parents have education on what the policies are. They don't have voice in what makes them. I don't know from a foster parent perspective, if you've you know, if you've had any access to understanding policy or creating policy, but it's, it's created by people who haven't necessarily experienced the effects of the policy. Um, So I think in an ideal world, you know, people need, people writing policy need to understand who it affects and the realistic outcome of the policy. You know, it's easy to write policy um, when you're not living. Right. So I think that that is really important and realizing that families living in poverty and, you know, marginalized populations, people of color, LGBTQ people, these people are all part of CPS and the policy doesn't necessarily reach them the same way it reaches like privileged populations. Um, so I think that's really important too. Like when you write policy, you have to realize you're writing it for right. everyone. Well, and you know, so many of the people writing policy are men. And I think that mm-hmm. oftentimes that's why family policy does get neglected a little bit more and not even necessarily just about foster care but even you know I mean the United States is absolutely trash in terms of like family leave policies (laughs) and things like that we're so behind the eight ball and it's like how does a country that is supposed to be such a leader that so many other countries look up to have such outdated policies and that's when you get to this question of who's writing the policy. And I think you're absolutely right. It needs to be just as diverse of a population writing the policy as the policies serve. Yeah. And I think it is really important to, to keep in mind that just because we have a policy doesn't mean it's a good policy. doesn't mean that it's still working. It might've worked 20 years ago. Um, You know, it might've even worked last year, but things change so much with how people function and how families function and, And so I think just because, you know, people say, oh, well, yeah, we wrote a policy on that. It kind of works. Yeah, it could be better. You know, I think that's a really detrimental viewpoint to have. You need to have an an outlook of if it could be better, we have to make it better. Um, Just because it's kind of working doesn't mean that that's okay. You know, and I think that's we have that view a lot, you know, especially like you bring up like maternity leave. You know, a lot of people say, well, yeah, it's not perfect, but at least we have something. I, you know, that outlook is so hurtful. Like, we're never going to get better if we continue. Saying, yeah. Well, at least it's something, <laughs> you know, like it, it should be effective and it should be, you know, it should be good. It shouldn't just yeah, be up to date and changing with the times. 
100%. Totally. Yeah. Uh, well, I appreciate you answering all these difficult questions. Um, I want to conclude with just a few questions that um, my Facebook chimed in with. The first of those is I had a gal named Claire ask if you've ever had a specific this is why I do what I do moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think I I honestly didn't have one in CPS, which I hate saying because it's I really so love their stories, but I only worked there for four months. But and and you know, like after four months, yeah, there were parts of it that were really, you know, I mean, I don't want to say really good, but there were parts of it that were rewarding. Um, but I really didn't have one of those moments in CPS. Um, I know when I worked as a case aide, I I had those moments as a case aide. Um, I was working with a young girl who had severe autism. She was nonverbal. Um, she came from a very traumatic background, obviously. I mean, she was in the system. Um, and I was one of her only case aides just because she was difficult to work with. Um, and I ended up working with her okay. for like a year and a half. And um, her and I formed a really good bond. She started becoming more verbal. Um, I took her to a lot of therapy appointments. And eventually her and I kind of, you know, we kind of clicked for a while. It was really hard. But we had moments where I did feel like this is why I do this. Because this kid needs someone who sees her as a kid, even though she has all these challenges, she's still a kid. I can still take her to a playground. And, you know, she was also a runner. So it was really hard to find normal kid activities. Um, But I was really determined in that situation to find things that fit her needs um, and didn't make her feel like, you know, I didn't want her to feel like a challenged child. I wanted her to feel like just a kid. Um, And so I think that honestly was one of my moments of this is why I do this. Um, with her, I was able to go through the whole process and kind of work with the licensing licensing agency. And I was actually able to help screen her adoptive parents. Um, and I took her to the airport to go meet her adoptive parents, which was awesome. Um, and I think that really made it worth it to me because she was pretty nonverbal. But once we got to the airport and I told her, hey, we're going to see, you know, your new mom. Um, she started dancing Aww. and doing all of her little cues of her being excited and she was really happy. And so I think that definitely was one of my moments of like, this is worth it. Um, and so, yeah, I think when I think about those, that one was definitely yeah, that's huge for me. Very heartwarming. Um, <laughs> yeah, she's a good kid. <laughs> she did follow it up with what about having an I don't know if I can keep doing this moment. <laughs> oh I had those moments for sure um because yes. I can't do it anymore was um, there like one so... in particular that stood out to you or a breaking point yeah there was for me um and I don't want to get too into it especially just because I want to respect you know people's confidentiality Absolutely. for sure um but for me my moment um of I cannot do this anymore was I went with one of my coworkers to a child forensic interview um, which is essentially just a very formal interview for kids. A detective is there and they get interviewed by um, trained interviewers who are trained to interview kids without asking guiding questions and without putting pressure on the situation and just kind of to make them feel at ease while collecting information. And it can be, um, it holds up better in court just because the detective's there and it's, you know, at a facility right. that's meant for these interviews. So I went to one of those with a case that we had had for a while, and it was involving sexual abuse um, between siblings, which is really hard. I hated those cases. I mean, no one yeah. likes them, but this one sucked. Um, and it was a young girl, and I was just sitting in this room for like an hour listening, and I had to take notes on everything that she was saying. We have to transcribe the interviews. And it was just one of those cases where she was able to enunciate everything that happened um, very clearly in a way that a kid, you know, no kid should be able to tell these stories. They shouldn't have to experience these. Um, But hearing her say some of the things that she had been through and just hearing what her story was, was I just had this moment of like, I cannot do this anymore. You know, I cannot watch kids go through this, which felt horrible for me because, you know, at the same time I had this huge guilt of, who am I to say I can't do this anymore when the kids have to go through this, you know, like this is what their lives are, whether I think it's fair or not. Um, So I had this huge moment of guilt from that, but I think I definitely knew um, that day because I had to go straight back to work after that. You know, I was like, I wanted to go home. Like I was just crushed and I felt so uncomfortable. I felt like I felt dirty just from listening to her story because it was just really bad. 
Um, and I wanted to go home, but I had to go back to work and I had a meeting and I didn't have time to debrief because we had to do a family phone call in the car on the way, on the Mm -hmm. way back to the office. And I knew at that point that I couldn't do it anymore. It was too much for me. Thank you for sharing that. I'm sure it's not easy. Yeah. I know it's a little heavy, so I apologize, but yeah, that was. No, I I appreciate that. And that's why I wanted to have you on. And I do just want to say, you know, thank you so much for, you know, I want to say thank you for your service, honestly, because I know that it was somewhat <laughs> yeah. short-lived, but what you did was so important. And, you know, I obviously don't blame you at all for having to get out of that line of work, but mm-hmm. I know that you have been able to be a light in kids' and parents' eyes um, and their lives. Mm-hmm. So I just am grateful for you for that. Um, let's see here. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you. Okay. So I had someone ask about weekend staffing for CPS. Do you guys have weekend staffing after hours staffing? You kind of sort of touched on that. Yeah. So we do have weekend staffing and we do have after hours. Um, there's always someone in the office. Uh, there's always, like so when you make a call to CPS it goes to intake which is a separate place like CPS mm-hmm. workers don't process those um so intake is working 24/7 you can call the report line at any time and like a real person's going to answer you might be on hold yeah. for a while but <laughs> but there will be a real person um so they work all the time um and then we do have after hours staff so those incidents that i was saying you know at 4:30 if a kid shows up to our office um that's on CPS anything after 4:30 transfers to after hours um and it kind of depends on the day like after hours is on call so if intake gets a case that is like hey this is urgent the police are there someone needs to go get this kid after hours is going to get called and go to that person's house um but depending on the case like if we get a call saying that something will probably need to happen at seven o'clock tonight it's the social workers who they'll call after hours and kind of work with them to coordinate an after hour plan of care And that's kind of the same thing that happens over the weekend. Um, Weekends are a little different just because, you know, there's more, more time, obviously, in between Friday and Monday. So Mondays usually will have um, kind of a backlog Mm -hmm. of reports. Some anything that wasn't anything that wasn't urgent, um, we'll deal with on Monday morning. Um, But anything urgent goes to after hours on the weekend. Thank you for clarifying that. Uh, Mm -hmm. And you got asked how it works in terms of making contact with kids consistently, you know, how much contact are you required Mm -hmm. to have with kids that end up on your case or however that works. Um, I think someone was feeling that CPS workers don't necessarily have enough contact with the kids and are not able to adequately understand their needs. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so for that one, there is policy in place on that, and I don't want to necessarily quote it because it's been a while, and I can't specifically remember the days. I know that roughly once you've gone through the whole investigating process, if a case is still open, depending on age, I believe you have to touch base with a kid once a month, and then if they're younger, once every two weeks, Um, which you're right, that's not very much, especially if they're in an abusive situation. Once a month, so much can happen, Um, and so that is hard, but also... Um, that I believe that policy is just so tricky because you know like we said parents don't want us in their lives and if you're knocking on the door every week saying hey it's time for me to check on your kid um, you know there's potential to create a really negative relationship there especially if you're trying to say that you trust this bio parent to make changes um, if you're checking up on them all the time as much as that might seem like it could be really helpful um, it actually can create a lot of pushback Um, parents want time to work on things so it is kind of a tricky thing. Um, there are certain rules as far as like initial contact when we have to contact a child. Um, and that just depends okay. on the nature of the report. Um, there's two different types. We can do um, a 72-hour contact, which is 72 hours after the phone call is made. Doesn't matter when we get the report. It can be like it's made Monday night. We get it Tuesday. 10 hours has already passed. We, you know, the clock is still ticking. Um, or it can be 24 okay. hours from the report time um so it just depends and in those times it's just we have to see the kid or at least make a real attempt to see the kid um within those time frames um and sometimes it does depend on the parents and how much they know because there are parents who are aware that a report was made and then they'll you know they'll take their kids out of school um 
And so that can be hard, but definitely within 24 or 72 hours, depending on the case, we'll make okay. initial contact. And finally, from one of your BFFs, Danielle, would like to know oh, how you got cool cats. <laughs> oh, my cats are the best. Um, <laughs> they're both kind of rescue cats, which is great. I got one from the shelter and he was a sick little feral baby. Um, and I love him. And my other cat was a rescue from my brother. So they're great. They're my self-care emotional support cats. One is my my black cat is actually my real emotional support cat. And she is the best. Um, that's another small piece of advice. If you do this work, uh, have a pet, if at all possible. Love they you love no you. Matter what. The best. <laughs> I know. Honestly, they don't need to yeah. understand your trauma. And you can talk to them about anything. <laughs> it's so good. You can. You can tell your pet anything. They have no idea what you're saying. Sometimes it helps just to tell them that you had the crappiest so day. So ideal. No so tell us what you're doing now. What are you up to? You know, throw out your Instagram or whatever you're working on. Yeah. So speaking of my cats, yes. they do have an Instagram. Um, I I should know the name off the top of my head, but let me get it. Oh, it's Blaze and Thelms. Um, they're the cutest so if you want to go check them out um and get some cat loves you can go look at them um and I do art too uh also part of my self-care um it's that one's brush and bumble on Insta- instagram um and I've started kind of messing around with some digital art which is really fun I've had so much time on my hands because of this quarantine yeah. <laughs> so I have been taking lots of cat pictures doing lots of art um so and she's really amazing fun. guys really so like go it. check out her art page seriously um oh, thank you yeah I'll do <laughs> I am anyone. so it's grateful really <laughs> for you for sharing all this with us today and coming on the podcast um Rachel was kind of my guinea pig today because I had not had not done this with anyone <laughs> and we figured it out and she was just incredible to talk to as I'm sure you guys will all feel after listening yeah, and thank you for having me. It was so fun to talk about our experiences. And I love your passion for all of this. And it is so fun you. to see. <laughs> thank you so <laughs> much. You You're the best. Have a good rest of your weekend, and we will chat soon. Thanks for tuning yes, in, guys. Bye. You.